A reading from God's word from Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary. Hope you are doing well this morning on this uh, frigid Sunday morning. I was uh, driving Maley uh, earlier, and uh, my six-year-old, for those who don't know, and she asked me what the sermon was about, and I said, well, I could tell you, but then, you know, I'd ruin it for you on Sunday, and she said, oh, I don't listen to the sermons, she said. I just, uh, I just color, and I do the children's ministry Sunday school. So uh, she said, you should tell me now. So I don't remember what all I said to her, but in any case, I'm hoping that if you're watching, you will listen to the sermon and not just run off in color this morning. But, um, and if you're watching this morning uh, through our new Zoom gathering, uh, good to see you all. I poked my head in there uh, before I came down uh, to the service this morning. So all of you have bundled up together and come together to church in a uh, virtual car, as it were. And so I hope you are enjoying connecting with each other as well as uh, here in our service this morning. If you missed that in the announcements this past week, let me encourage you uh, the next time we do this to uh, participate in that. I think it's a great way to stay connected and to connect with each other, particularly in light of the fact that this is uh, the first Sunday of the month and communion. So let me encourage you again, uh, if you have not uh, already gathered your communion elements together to have those ready uh, to go here at the end of the sermon. So. All right, we're continuing on with our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And the last two weeks, we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we could have spent, really, we could have spent 12 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much there, and really, there's so much in uh, the entire uh, Gospels and in the story of Jesus. So as I was putting together the sermon series and trying to think, like, what are we going to focus on? There's only so many weeks. And I fast forwarded us uh, all the way to Matthew chapter 12, which would be Mark chapter 2, if we were looking at this same passage. So early on still in uh, Jesus's story. And this is Jesus and his disciples getting called out by the Pharisees for plucking grain on the Sabbath. Now, this may not seem like a particular uh, section of Scripture that one would want to prioritize in a quick survey of Jesus' life, but there's two reasons why I think this passage of Scripture is particularly important for us to slow down on or why I wanted to preach this passage. First reason is this passage uniquely, I think, helps us understand the larger story of Jesus's life, 
why the Jewish leaders uh, were so opposed to him and why they eventually crucified him. So as we're considering the narrative of Jesus's life and we're trying to figure out, uh, you know, from the birth all the way to the crucifixion and then the resurrection, like why did he get crucified as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned? This right here shows us, this is the tell of what is coming about why he eventually was crucified and why the Pharisees who become his arch nemesis throughout the gospels have such ire against him. The second reason I wanted to preach this uh, passage is because I really like it. And since I'm the pastor, I get to pick the passages. And so here we've picked this one. I don't know that that reason is as good as the first reason, but there it is all the same. All right. So the focus uh, of the sermon this morning is going to be on the connection between rules and mercy. We want to, we could put it in the form of a question. What is the point of the law? What is the point of rules? Why does God give us commands? And how does our understanding of God's approach to rules and law inform our own understanding of how we approach rules and law? So all of us have to deal with rules and law, whether we're the rules rule enforcer or we're the recipients who live under rules. All of us have to come to terms with the fact that our world is comprised of rules and God's world and the scriptures are comprised of rules as well. So how do we think about rules and law from God's perspective, and how does that inform the way that we should think about rules and law from a human perspective? So what I want to do this morning is kind of teach through this text, explain what's going on, help us see how it fits into the larger story of Jesus's life. And then I want to draw out some applications specifically related to rules. And I have in mind here, especially for those of us that are parents uh, at the church, and there's going to be application here that extends beyond uh, the role of parenting. But parents, one of our primary responsibilities is figure out what to do with rules and laws in relation to our children. So how do we use rules and laws as parents in the same way that God gave us rules and laws as our heavenly father. Now, if you're not a parent this morning, that's quite all right. Maybe uh, you're an employer. Uh, maybe you're a pastor or a minister listening. If you wield rules and laws in some way, you know, I think there's application here for you as well. So uh, you translate any of this into your particular context as necessary. And then we're going to tie together rules and law with the fact that this is our first Sunday of the month celebrating communion. Because rules and law ultimately usher us into the life-changing uh, message of the gospel. So we want to connect all of this back into the gospel. All right, so into our text here this morning in Matthew chapter 12, we've got three principal characters in uh, this uh, little uh, section of scripture. We have Jesus, we have the Pharisees, and we have Jesus' disciples. These are the three principal characters. And in 12.1, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath day. They're going from here to there. We're not quite sure where they're going. Uh, but they're walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath day. The disciples are hungry, and so they begin to pluck the, the heads of grain off of the stalks, and they're rubbing the, the, uh, the, the grain in their fingers, kind of getting rid of the chaff, and then they're eating the grain. 
And the Pharisees see this. Now, we're not sure exactly why the Pharisees are there, whether they happen to be walking with Jesus in conversation. Things have not gotten yet super intense between them, so maybe they're still having a conversation. Or maybe they were on the outside of the field and they happened to see this looking in. For whatever the reason, the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples doing this, and they throw the yellow flag, the yellow card, I guess, if this was soccer. And they say, unlawful, you've broken the rules. And they rebuke Jesus because Jesus, of course, is in charge of the Pharisees. So they go straight to Jesus and they say uh, to Jesus, you are letting your disciples do something that is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, we've met the Pharisees a few weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that many of you, particularly if you've been around church for a long time or you've read through uh, the New Testament and Jesus' story quite a bit, you're familiar with the Pharisees, and in particular, they're concerned for rules. They are very zealous for rules, the Jewish law, in fact. But I know that some of you uh, maybe are not aware of all of this. Perhaps you're new to Christianity or this just isn't something that you focused on in your Christian faith. Maybe you're still exploring Christianity and so this is all new and so I don't want to just rush past this because I think there's a lot of things that are assumed here in this text that I want us to make sure we really understand. So I'm going to do a brief refresher on the Pharisees and the Jewish law that they are very zealous for to help remind us why the Pharisees are so bothered here. Because we're going to see as this passage moves on that the Pharisees are really bothered here. Bothered enough, in fact, that right here in this context, they decide that they're going to kill Jesus. So this is a decisive moment in the relationship between the Pharisees and Jesus. And I want us to understand why this is so intense for them. So let's rewind things a bit back into the story that we've been telling here for the past year or so. God gave the law through the prophet Moses to the Israelites at the very beginning of their national identity. So all the way back into Exodus 19, the Israelites have just come out of the land of Egypt. They're being formed as a nation. And so God gives them a law. And the Israelites considered this law fundamentally as a great gift. This is something that God had given to them because he loved them. And it was going to help them know how to live. All the nations of the world were wandering in darkness. They didn't know what God wanted for them. But here God had called out a people for himself and he had given them the law. And the law was a guide for them in this world of darkness. So the psalmist in Psalm 119 refers to the law as a lamp. It's a lamp for our feet. So have you ever been out wandering in the woods at night, right? You're stumbling over tree branches and roots and you can't find the path. That's what it was like living in the world without any word from God. And so the, the people of Israel were very happy to receive this law from God that was like a lamp to their feet that told them where to step, where not to step, how to stay out of the ditches or not bump into trees. The law was seen fundamentally as a good thing. And the law included civil regulations about how the nation should be organized and kind of its politics. It included ceremonial and religious regulations about how they were to approach worship of God. And then it included moral regulations about how they were to behave. All right, so the law promised blessings for obedience and warned of punishments for disobedience. This is something that we looked at uh, all throughout our story after the law was given. If Israel uh, disobeyed the law of God, God would then send prophets to warn them. 
And then if they continued disobeying, God would begin to bring punishments upon them, to bring them back into the into line and observing the law. And if they continued to disregard the law of God in disobedience, the final and great curse of the law would be expulsion from the land. They would be kicked out of the land. Well, sure enough, that is, as we saw, Israel's story. They disregard the law. They don't take it seriously. They ignore it. They go their own way. God gives them the lamp and they just throw it over their shoulder and they're bumping into trees and they're making a mess of themselves out there in the darkness of the woods. And so finally, after ignoring and ignoring and ignoring God, God banishes them from the land and sends them out into the land of a captivity. In particular, their idolatry became so problematic. Well, they're in captivity for 70 years, and during this time, they learn their lesson. They had a 70-year timeout. God brings them back into the land, and they turn a new corner. No more idolatry. They are done with idolatry. And so there's going to be no more laxity on following the rules. So between the close of the Old Testament where God has brought them back and they've now sobered up and they realize they got to pay attention to the law and the opening of the New Testaments, that's where the Pharisees emerge. So the Pharisees emerge probably about 160 BC, so about 200 years before the time of Christ. As we're looking at now in Jesus's life, somewhere in and around 30 AD, the Pharisees have been around for about 200 years. And by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees have become the professional rule keepers. And they saw it as their duty to make sure that the nation of Israel adhered and took seriously the law so that they did not end up back in captivity. And they took their job very seriously. And one commentator who I was reading this week, he referred to the Pharisees as the serious. And I think that's a great way to capture the spirit of the Pharisees. They're very serious about adherence to the law. I was listening to a uh, financial uh, planner consultant, and he was talking about the importance of having an emergency fund. And he was saying, you know, you need to have an emergency fund. It's just, it keeps you safe. And if bad things happen, you're like ready with that emergency fund. And he said, my wife... Uh, she's very concerned that I have the emergency fund. And he says, in fact, she wants an emergency fund for her emergency fund. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what the Pharisees were like. They wanted rules to protect the rules. And then they wanted rules to protect the rules that protected the rules. They wanted, they layered rules upon rules upon rules to protect the law. They had seen what had happened when you disregarded the law. And so they're like, we're not going to get anywhere near the edge of that breach of the laws. And so when the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, that ran afoul of some of their rules that they had put in place to protect the law of God. God clearly said in the law, no working on the Sabbath. And in fact, his law against working on the Sabbath was specifically applied in the very first instance to going out and feeding yourself. The children of Israel were in the wilderness. You might remember this, but the first Sabbath, the first breach of the Sabbath was because the children of Israel were feeding themselves. So God's law clearly said no working on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was to be a time of resting in God's provision rather than spending your energy providing for yourself. But God hadn't quite in the law specified what constituted working. 
Well, no worry. The Pharisees stepped into the breach with their layers and layers of rules, and they determined in their superior wisdom that rubbing grain between your fingers constituted working and therefore was a breach of the Sabbath law. Because, I mean, first it's picking grain on the Sabbath, and then it's idolatry, and then we're back in captivity. Right? That was the logic of the Pharisees. So then in verse 3, back to our passage here, in verse 3, Jesus steps in to defend his disciples in light of the, uh, the, the rebuke that has come from the Pharisees. Now, we might expect Jesus to say to the Pharisees, listen, my disciples aren't breaking the law. They're only breaking your man-made interpretations of the law, which was true. But that's not what he says. He says something similar to that in other times he interacts with the Pharisees. But here that's not what he says. He doesn't say, he doesn't justify his disciples by saying they're not really breaking the law. They're just breaking your interpretation of the law. He actually says, in effect, yes, maybe my disciples are breaking the Sabbath law. So what? And he's going to provide some justification. And his response is shocking to the Pharisees. His response perhaps may be shocking to you and to I as well. Is he really disregarding the law? I mean, God's law. It's one thing to disregard the man-made laws of the Pharisees, but God's law? How do we make sense of this? Well, let's see what Jesus does here. First, he appeals in verse 3. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He appeals to David. David, of course, is the great uh, Jewish king. This is before David had become the king. And before David had become the king, he was fleeing for his life from King Saul. And so in 1 Samuel 21, the passage that Jesus is referring to, David flees for his life from King Saul. He has to leave so fast that he has no food with him. And so he's in a hurry. He's, he's hungry. And he comes to the priests at Nob and he asks them for food. But the only food that is available is the holy bread from the sanctuary which the law of God in Leviticus 24.9 specifically states is not to be eaten by anyone except the priests who minister in God's presence. But the priest, in breach of that law in Leviticus 24.9, gives David the bread, and David takes it, knowingly knowing this is the showbread, the holy bread of the presence, and he eats it and he shares some with his companions. Which is to say, David did something unlawful. This wasn't a breach of some pharisaical rule to protect the laws. This was a breach of the law itself. And then in verse 5, Jesus ups the ante. Not only did David break the law, but the priests break the law every Sabbath when they work in the temple on the Sabbaths in performing their, ministers, their ministries and their duties and their sacrifices. The law technically forbids work or labor on the Sabbath. And yet every Sabbath, Jesus says, the priests serving in the temple profane, this is an interesting word that he picks because it's going back to the Sabbath law, this word profane, they profane the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath. And then look what he says in relation to the priests who work, who profane the Sabbath. He says they're guiltless. 
So the priests are breaching the Sabbath law, but are not condemned as guilty. David breached the sanctuary laws, but wasn't condemned as guilty. So what does all this mean? When we get to verse 7. If you had known, Jesus says, what this means, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Well, what is the this he's talking about? It's a quote from Hosea 6, 6, where God says to the Israelites, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Hosea, the people are coming back. This is, they're coming back from the land, right? They're com- or they're coming back to the land from captivity, and they're trying to clean up their act. And they're cleaning up their act on the outside, as it were. But God says, I'm not interested in the external obedience that is shown and demonstrated through the sacrificial system. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God was interested in not just right behavior. He was interested in a right heart. So Jesus' rebuttal of the Pharisees goes deeper than you've added too many man-made rules to the top of God's rules. His rebuttal more fundamentally is you have completely missed the point of the law. Think back to Psalm 119. I just mentioned it earlier, but the law was given as a lamp, as a guide. Think about how a lamp works. Have you ever seen, you know, the old shows where someone is, is carrying the lamp, right? When you carry a lamp in the darkness, whether it's in the house or out in the woods, you carry the lamp a little bit off to the side, right? Because it shines its light out in front of you. You don't carry the lamp right here. If you carried the lamp right here, right in front of your face, you wouldn't see anything. The, the light from the lamp would just shine right back in your eyes. It would actually blind you to what you were trying to see. The whole point of the lamp would be, would be, would be broken if you carried it in front of you. You have to carry it off to the side. The function of the lamp was to show the obstacles in the path. It was to show where the places of danger might be, right? And in order to do that, you couldn't be blinded by the lamp. But the Pharisees had turned the lamp of the law into like high beam headlights that were pointed straight back in the faces of the Israelites. The law in the hands of the Pharisees was no longer a friend. It was no longer an aid It was no longer a guide or a support. It was a blinding power that had frozen Israel in fear. The Pharisees, God bless them, they had started out back in 160 BC with the best of intentions, determined to take the law of God seriously. And and Israel hadn't been taking the law seriously. So we can understand why we need some people to step into that space and say, we got to start paying attention to the law. But in climbing out of the libertine ditch that Israel had fallen into, they got to the top of the road, went right past it, and they fell into the ditch of legalism on the other side. Somewhere along the way, they had forgotten that God's intent in giving the law was mercy. David had been destitute, in need of food. He needed mercy. The priest worked every Sabbath in the temple to minister the mercy of God to the people. And all of that was consistent with the spirit of a law of mercy, even if not the letter of the law. So Jesus is saying, you Pharisees have taken the vehicle of God's mercy and have turned it into a source of stumbling, a hammer of judgment. 
In your zeal to uphold the letter of the law, you have missed the spirit of the law. And now we get to verse 8 and why the Pharisees became determined to crucify Jesus. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. To be Lord of the Sabbath was to be Lord of the law. The most important of the law's regulations, particularly in this time in Israel's history, was the Sabbath. So to be Lord of the Sabbath was to be Lord of the law. Jesus is saying, I am above the law. I am the author and the Lord of the law. The law does not stand above me as my master, but it bows before me and ministers to me as my servant. So Jesus is like, you're throwing the yellow card on me for breaking the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm throwing the yellow card on you. And what's more, my disciples are with me. They're like the hungry David with the holy bread like the merciful priests in the temple. They live like I do, beyond and above the letter of the law, into the true and merciful intent of the law. The whole self-understanding of the Pharisees was founded on the law. They had become masters of the law. And then they used their mastery of the law to master the people of Israel. For Jesus to say that he not only stood outside of the law, but above the law, that he was the Lord of the law. It was sacrilege. And then for him to garner a following in which the people that belonged to him came to see themselves as likewise beyond and above the law. It was intolerable. Jesus's approach to the law stripped the Pharisees of their power and their moral authority over the people. So you read just a few verses later, it sounds like it's in the same day. I mean, right on the heels of this, Jesus does another blessing on the Sabbath and the Pharisees get together and they say, we've had enough of this. We've had to destroy this guy. If we let him keep going, disregarding the law, stripping us of our power, it's, it's intolerable. And so they began for the first time after this incident to plot to kill Jesus. Look in verse 14 of chapter 12. All right, now let's see if we can apply this, how not to be a Pharisee. We don't want to be a Pharisee this morning. So first, let me just say that not everyone is prone to the error of the Pharisees, right? That's not, not, not all of us are going to become Pharisees. Uh, we're not prone or wired up that way. Let me give some characteristics of the kind of people that are prone to the same error. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying, as I lay out these things, I'm not saying that you, you are a Pharisee if you are, are like this. I'm just saying you're prone to the error of the Pharisees if you're like this, right? All right, so here's some people that, here's some characteristics of people that are prone to the error of the Pharisees. First, uh, you're prone to the error of the Pharisees if you have a high regard for rules. Even the ones that you don't really understand and you do not easily or readily break them. Right? So you just, you're just wired up to regard rules. Right? You're the kind of person that at three in the morning in a small, small rural town, you will sit and obey the red light even though there's no one around. Because that's the rule. That's what you do. 
right? And if, and if everyone out just doing, driving their own way, it'd be chaos, right? So you follow the rules, even the rules that don't seem to make sense. You just follow rules. You might be prone to the error of the Pharisees. Number two, if you can see imperfections a mile off in yourself and in others. The Pharisees were good at like calling the fouls, right? They could see the imperfections. I mean, this is why they became the professional rule keepers because they could see when the rules were being broken, right? So if you're good at seeing imperfections from like a mile away, you just walk into the room and you're like, wrong, 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 right? If you've got that ability, right, beware, right? You're prone to the error of the Pharisees. You're prone to the error of the Pharisees. Number three, if you can go to worst case scenarios pretty quickly, right? This is what the Pharisees are doing. They see, you know, they see the rubbing of the grain between the fingers of the disciples and they're like, we're heading to captivity, right? Like if we let this keep going, where does it stop? I remember one time we were trying to get our oldest to do his homework in third grade. And uh, he, I think, wanted to play with Legos or something. As every reasonable third grade boy would prefer to play with Legos than do his homework. But I was trying to convince him and he wasn't responding. And so I was like really leaning into it. And I'm like, listen, you know, if you don't do your homework, you're not going to pass this class. If you don't pass this class, you're not going to, you're not going to graduate from elementary school. And then you won't go to middle school and then you won't go to high school. And then you call, and then you're going to live in a van down by the river. Right. And you just kind of go right to the very worst thing. Right. And uh, don't do that, parents. That, was, uh, that probably wasn't super helpful. But if you are prone to go right to like the worst case scenarios, right, then you might be prone to the error of the Pharisees. All right, you might be prone to the error of the Pharisees uh, if you value rules. Now listen to this. Because they provide safety and structure in an otherwise chaotic world. Right? That, so you're, you're, you're drawn to rules because rules are safer. Right? The, the chaos of a, you know, kind of the wild, wild west without rules, like that's nervous. But a well-structured and ordered and stable rule-following society, that's safer. Right? So if you are prone to seek after rules because it provides safety, then you might be prone to the same error of the Pharisees. You might be prone to the same error of the Pharisees if you can't always remember or easily articulate the purpose of particular rules. Right? So not only are you willing to follow them, uh, even if you can't understand them, but you don't, you don't always fully understand them. You don't, they don't always really make sense to you. If someone say like, why did we do such and such? Or why do you do such and such? You, you're not really sure, right? You're, you're, more, uh, you're more clear about what the rule is than you are about what the rule is for. You might be prone to the error of the Pharisees if you are dutiful and responsible and almost always follow through on your commitments and it's hard for you to understand why others don't do likewise like you do. Think about the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees, they were dutiful and responsible. Say what you will about all of their shortcomings, and they had many shortcomings, right? But they were dutiful and responsible. They had a lot of self-control. They had a lot of self-discipline. They followed through on their commitments, right? They did what they were supposed to do. And then finally, you might be prone to the error of the Pharisees if this sermon is making you nervous because you're thinking to yourself, if the spirit of the law trumps the letter of the law, then where does that all stop? I mean, if you just kind of everybody goes with the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, I mean, it's going to be chaos. Right? It's kind of part of that worst case scenario thinking. Now, listen, none of these things are bad in themselves. None of these kind of 
uh, uh, characteristics are bad in themselves. And truth be told, this is me. So I thought through myself, like what, what, what am I prone to be? And these are all things that I am prone to be, which is why I would tell him my oldest that he was going to end up in a van down by the river if he didn't do his homework in third grade, right? In fact, all of these things, though, can be used for good, right? So I don't even mean to say that these are all negative because God bless it, we need to have people who have high regard for rules, even rules that they don't really understand. If we had to make sense of every rule that was given to us, that would be chaos, right? We need people who can see dangers and imperfections a mile off. We need people who can, who can see the connection between this and this and this and this and where it will all lead us. We need people who value rules because of safety, because rules do provide safety and structure and stability. And we need people who are dutiful and responsible and who follow through on their commitments, right? So we, these are all good and necessary and important things, right? So don't hear me saying that if you have these characteristics, that's a bad thing. You need to get rid of those characteristics. That's not true at all. We need people with these characteristics, just like the nation of Israel needed the Pharisees in 160 AD. But then the Pharisees turned sour because they forgot the point of what all of that was for. So if you have these characteristics, that's fine. But just beware that you don't fall into the same air of the Pharisees prioritizing the rules over mercy. Now, if you don't have any of these characteristics and this is not you, then you beware too because you've got other problems, no doubt. Right? And your sermon's coming at a different time. Right? But for all my potential or actual Pharisees out there, if you do not let yourself, if we, put myself in this group, if we do not let ourselves be led by the Spirit, then our commitment to truth and rules will turn the lamp of God, the rules of God, into a blinding and oppressive light in the face of those that we are around. God's goal for humanity is not merely to see his standards met, his rules followed. His goal for humanity is to see his people flourish. That's the thing that he desires. Meeting the standard without flourishing, that was the failure of the Pharisees. They had brought obedience. They had brought rule following to the people of Israel, but they had not brought flourishing. We must always keep in mind the heart of mercy that stands above and animates the rules. So parents or bosses or employers or pastors, do you wield rules like a lamp of illumination on behalf of your children or whoever you've been entrusted to? Or do you wield rules like a hammer of judgment at your children or to whom has ever been entrusted to you? Let me just close with three suggestions before we turn to communion. If you find yourself this morning knowing that you are prone to the error of the Pharisees, how do you take what is a God-given good, all these things that are good, how do you keep them from turning sour and moving into something that becomes uh, negative to those around you? Three suggestions. First, I would say you have to drop all judgment. Just have to drop judgment. God did not put you into the world to judge people. 
anger, bitterness, frustration, if you wield the rules of God in anger or bitterness or frustration, the rules that God has given to bless people will turn into hammers that bludgeon people. The problem is not breaking the rules. That's not God's ultimate concern. The problem is the breaking of people. That's the thing that he's concerned about. And so when we see rules being broken, that should not generate within us frustration and anger, right? That should generate in us sorrow and love, right? We want to see people flourish. That should be the driving heart behind the rules, right? And so we give rules because we want to see blessing come, not because we, we're angry and we want to have order and structure for its own sake. So we got to drop all judgment. This is hard, I will say, as a parent. It's hard for anyone who's been tasked with, with the job of administering rules in whatever context because we personalize it, right? And then the breach of the rule becomes an insult about me personally. And then I respond out of my personal indignation and anger. And I'm now no longer wielding the rule as an, as a, as an uh, avenue of love, but I'm wielding it as a hammer to, of retribution to get back at you because you didn't respect me in the rules that I had given you. We have to drop all judgment if we are going to administer the rules of God. Another a suggestion, if you're prone to the error of the Pharisees, how do you take the, the good part of the Pharisees and not let it become, how do, you, how do you be the Pharisees of 160 BC and not become the Pharisees of 30 AD? Drop all judgment. Secondly, take circumstances into account. This is what the Pharisees did not do. Right? They were brittle in their application of the rules and the laws. If you think back to our sermon series, you might remember when Solomon was appealing to God as the great lawgiver at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon appealed to God as judge, as merciful, precisely because God takes circumstances into account. So if you apply the rules and the law of God, but you ignore the circumstances, you're going to do it in a bludgeoning and unhelpful way. I think when we want to take circumstances into account, I think it can be really helpful to ask genuine questions and to be willing to listen. If there's a breach of the rule, ask yourself, why has this rule been breached? And if the only answer you have is because people are rotten and sinful, well, then you haven't asked well enough. You haven't listened well enough. It might be true that people are rotten and sinful at times, right? But that might not be the only reason going on as to why the rule is being broken. So take circumstances into account. And then finally, and I think this is the biggest thing here, we just have to trust God. If you are prone to the error of the Pharisees, how do you keep those good impulses from turning bad? You have to live a life of faith and trust in God. What drives legalism is fear. Fear is what drives legalism. When we see things start to spiral out of control, when we fear being exiled from the land and sent back into captivity, we, we begin to, to clamp down harder and harder on the rules because we're trying to get our safety from adherence to the rules. And so it's our fear that drives our legalism in the lives of others. And fear drives it even in our own lives. But what would it look like if the Pharisees had been at rest and at peace and trust in God? And they had, 
held forth the law of God in love as a, as a blessing and a guide to the people. Not because they were terrified and afraid, but because they trusted God and were certain that he had given this law for the betterment of the people. We have to trust and rest in God's love for us and his provision in our life. So parents, as you're thinking about the rules that you bring to your children or employers or beyond, we do need to bring rules for our children. We do need to bring rules for our offices. Politicians need to bring rules for the lands that we live in. Right? But parents, if we are bringing rules out of a place of fear, it will not be a blessing to our children. We need to bring rules out of a posture of love and confidence in who God is in our lives. All right, well, that brings us to communion, speaking of who God is in our lives. Jesus says to the Pharisees that he is the Lord of the law. That he's above the law. And he says that those who are with him are likewise above the law. Some of you, my rule-following friends, you might be saying, but is that really what Jesus means? That we are above and beyond the law? Wouldn't that lead to just chaos and anarchy? Don't we mere creatures still need God's law to guide us and direct us? St. Augustine taught that the perfectly redeemed man who truly and wholly loves God can do whatever he pleases because what pleases him above all will be honoring God above all. I think there's a lot of insight there. Perfectly redeemed people do not need a written external law from God. Imagine that one day, just imagine this, Imagine that one day, rather than God writing his holy rules externally on a scroll or in a book, imagine, just imagine that somehow those holy rules became a living Holy Spirit and the spirit of those rules entered into us, into our hearts and became one with us. So much so that our innate impulses reflexively followed after God's heart. And imagine that we became so one with those rules, so happily and willingly under the sway of the spirit of those rules, so filled up with God's purposes and priorities, so immersed in the light of his wisdom, that God's rules were no longer carried in our hands externally like a lamp, but that we ourselves became the lamps, the light of God's rules emanating out from us, just like Jesus said. Imagine that the words of the prophet Jeremiah really did come true one day and that a day arrived when it was no longer necessary to teach the children of God the rules of God because God's rules were written on the hearts of God's people by the Spirit of God. I mean, just imagine that that were true one day. Just believe that that is going to be true one day. That's what Jesus is making his people into. Even now, 
through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the rules of God placed inside of us in our hearts is making us into little Christs, people who are becoming so one with the true intent of God's merciful law that we will one day no longer need external written laws and rules. In that day, our greatest pleasure and unchecked capacity will be to love God and to love God and love others above all else. Now, we're not there yet. The Apostle Paul said of himself when he wrote in Philippians 3, I'm not there yet, he said. I'm pressing hold to take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of me. We still need the written rules of God. We still need this book, the things that God has said to us there. But it's in the hope of that imagined day that we are celebrating communion this morning. The hope of becoming one with the merciful law of God that is personified truly and really in Jesus himself. This great hope has come to us because of God's mercy that has been extended to us in Christ. God, when the rules were being broken, he didn't get so hung up on the rules that he forgot about the point of the rules. The point of the rules was mercy. And the living law of God in the person of Jesus, let himself be judged by his own law in order to free us from his judgment. In becoming one with us, he placed himself under the law that we had broken. Not like David in great need, not like the priests ministering God's mercy in the temple, but like the idolatrous Israelites of old, who not only broke the letter of the law, but they trampled down underfoot the spirit of the law. Jesus came down under the law and absorbed its curses for your sake and for my sake in order to raise us up above its power and to make us like himself, living embodiments of God's holy and perfect law of love. So here we come to the table this morning. And if you have had the spirit of God, the rules of God, the law of God written upon your heart, and it's script is getting deeper and deeper into your life because God has promised it to be so. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, then this table that we celebrate this morning together as a church family, this table is for you. Right? This, this is a reminder, this is a reminder that we have the hope of resurrection to come in our union with Christ, that he is making us little Christs. He is making us all that he himself is. If you're not a believer this morning, then I ask that you not participate here in this moment, but to observe and to reflect upon the invitation that Jesus extends to you and the sacrifice that he has given on your behalf. Maybe, maybe you want to become a Christian. Even this morning, you want to become a Christian. Jesus stands holding out an invitation to you. He will welcome you. He will write his law upon your heart by the Spirit. He will forgive you of all 
that you have done in breaking not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Perhaps if that's your heart this morning, you could pray even something like this. Lord Jesus, I haven't been the rule follower I should be. I've either ignored your rules or I've used them to judge others. I haven't kept the law's letter, much less its spirit. I can't be what I should be without you. Come into my life and make me your own. Thank you for your great sacrifice of mercy upon the cross on my behalf. Forgive me for all my failures, past, present, and future, and fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can walk in the newness of life. If you extend that prayer out to God in faith, he receives you is his promise. So even now as I distribute the elements here to the worship team or folks at home are preparing them, I encourage you, if you're not a believer this morning, to reflect on the invitation that God extends to you through Christ to become one with him while he will write his law upon your heart.